everyone, and thank you for listening to Piano Whisperer. On this podcast, we'll be exploring the surprisingly vast world of pianos and pianists. So please join us as we interview all kinds of interesting and talented people, as well as provide behind-the-scenes encounters with all things piano. And now, with our host and savvy piano guide, Ben Klinger. Hello, everybody, and thank you very much for tuning into this episode of Piano Whisperer. I'm very excited today to have with me Dr. Richard Carpin. Richard Carpin is a composer and researcher in multiple areas of music and the arts. His compositions for both electronic media and live performance are widely known, recorded, and performed internationally. Over the last 30 years, he has also been in the forefront of the development of computer applications for music composition, interactive performance, and the sonic arts. He recently returned to the stage and the studio as a pianist. Carpin was the founding director of the Digital Arts and Experimental Media Department, and since 2009, has been director of the School of Music at the University of Washington, where he is also professor of music composition. He has been the recipient of many awards, grants, and prizes, including those from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Borges Contest in France, and Luigi Rosolo Foundation in Italy. Carpen has composed works for many leading international soloists, such as soprano Judith Bettina, violinists Garth Knox and Melia Watrous, trombonist Stuart Dempster, flutists Laura Chislett and Jos Zvanenberg, guitarist Stefan Ostergio, and ensembles such as the Six Tones, Jack Quartet, Seattle Symphony, and the Harry Parch Ensemble. Carpet is a founding member with Quang Vu of the Experimental Improvisational Ensemble, Indigo Mist. As a pianist, Carpet has performed and recorded with Quang Vu, Bill Frizzell, Ted Poor, Steve Rodby, and others countless others. Carpin's compositions and performances have been recorded on a variety of labels, including Vergo, Centaur, Noima, Le Chant du Monde, Diffusion, iMedia, Fleur de Son, Capstone, and Rare Noise. His other accomplishments, not limited to, but include a Doctor of Musical Arts from Stanford University, Fulbright Fellowship from the University of uh, Padua, Italy, studies with Betsy Joles at Paris Conservatory, more than 20 grants, fellowships, and prizes, an equal number of published recordings, many dozen internationally prized and commissioned compositions, including compositions commissioned from the Juilliard School, National Endowment of the Arts, Swedish National Radio, Seattle Symphony, and endless others. Dr. Rich Carpin, thank you so much for joining us. It's such an honor and a privilege to have you here. Well, it's always an honor and a privilege, Ben, to just get a chance to talk about music with a fellow music lover and performer. So this is great. I love doing this kind of thing. <laughs> well, great. Well, you've had such an interesting journey. You've pursued music and science equally under the sort of singular umbrella of art. And you've proven that these disciplines are by no means mutually exclusive, which actually will be a, a new concept for some people. There are a couple of cool quotes I wrote down, actually, from our last conversation. One was that art and science are the same thing. The other was technology and art are the ultimate collaboration. In the spirit of these quotes, I, I really want to ask you something. But before I do that, I know some listeners, particularly younger listeners, might say, how are art and science the same thing? 
thought that was a, a conversation worthy of commentary. And so I wondered if you would elaborate on this and, and also tell us about your own journey growing up and these two interests and how you saw them kind of as one and the same, if I understand correctly. Sure. So I, I would actually probably wouldn't say they're one and the same. To me, you know, something that is art is a something that we've defined. We use that word to define things that we call art. So clearly it can't be everything that people do to express themselves. And science is not all the things that people do that is about factual knowledge where they're not expressing themselves. There's a, it's not just that there's overlap. It's that human beings seem to explore the world around them, the world inside themselves, their bodies, their minds, the myster- mysteries of things we can't explain about ourselves, and of course the universe um, outside ourselves. And science, it seems to us in our society that science is sort of the form of investigation that explores the natural world, including people and including social structures. And that art is this thing we where we're expressing ourselves. So we're, some people will say art is what makes life worth living because it brings us whatever it brings us. So to me, art is investigation, it's discovery. But the problem for art throughout time is that I can't tell you what I discovered. I can only give you an experience. I can create an experience for other people for what I think I've discovered. So I'm searching. I'm searching inward, outward, looking at the universe from you know, the way that I can as an artist, looking within myself and within people I know, and investigating who we are, what we are, what we do, what we're made of. And the art is knowledge based on that understanding and the understandings and the discoveries of those things that you need to read the book, read the poem, watch the play, listen to the music, see the film, and all the other forms of art um, in order to experience that knowledge for yourself. It's very mysterious. It's very magical. And it's why we have a hard time defining art. And it's why we think of art as being different than science. There's this great picture of you online (laughs) where you're sitting at a piano with your eyes closed and you have a helmet with lots of sensors on your head and more sensors around your arms, though your hands aren't on the keyboard at all. In fact, I think they're on your lap. Yet the keys, you see the keys clearly moving. That's kind of a picture to me of this integration of, of art and science. Can you tell us what's going on in that picture? Yeah. So that's a Disclavier grand piano. Uh, it's a great instrument, which is a real piano. I like to play real pianos, but it's robotic, let's just say. It has the ability to be played mechanically. It's, it's a very, very fancy player piano, but very high resolution so that if I were to be careful in how I recorded or sent data to the piano to play, it could be pretty much as nuanced at this point as a live pianist. And so, But it's, an, it's a real piano. The keys go down uh, and it makes music. So what's going on there is I have an EEG cap on and there are um, electrodes that are picking up signals from my brain. And the armbands are EMG, which are picking up muscle neurons firing in my arms. And that's being the data derived from those signals from my brain and from my muscle neurons. We have computer programs that use that data to just make decisions. We make the decisions. What kind of data coming from the brain is going to make something happen on the piano? What kind of data from the arm uh, neuron, muscle, muscle neurons is going to make certain notes be played uh, or collections of notes or the pedals go down? How loud is it going to be? All those kinds of things that you would do. So I'm sitting at the piano and I'm thinking various things and I'm 
tensing my muscles and my arms in various ways uh, to play the piano without touching the piano. There's two important parts of this project. One is the exploration of how to play music that we haven't done before, that is, without actually using our bodies. We play music in our mind. We all can hallucinate music, and so we can hear music without playing it. But to actually physically play music and play with other people without actually touching an instrument, I don't know what's going to happen. So I automatically want to explore that. And we, do, and we still don't really know exactly what's happening and what we're doing and we're exploring. The other part of that is, and we've already had this, is working with neuroscientists. We've had some projects where we've had, uh, for example, um, quadriplegic patients of our neuroscientist colleague who have been able to play. The, we, uh, we did a concert last year where there were two paraplegic patients um, and they learned how to play the disc clavier together. They had a remarkable rate of uh, thinking different kinds of thoughts or the kinds of uh, feelings and having certain pitches go down. And so they were able to play a duet. They can't move. They were there with their the oxygen being fed in. And I think everybody in the audience was in tears because it was beautiful, not just because, okay, here are these paraplegics playing the piano together. It was actually beautiful too. Um, so uh, I, I like this, uh, that I'm doing it purely for artistic investigation but there's um, a really important part of this that helps people who can't play music anymore, if they were musicians, um, helps them play music now. That's amazing. So how focused do you think that this can become? And is this your ultimate vision for this? Or are you just exploring and seeing where it takes you? For my own work, um, it's exploring where, where it takes me. I, I like the idea. I, I I'm going in two directions simultaneously in my own work, which is coming back to the piano after many years away from it. And now I've been back to the piano probably for seven or eight years. So I guess I should update my bio. Um, it's not so recent anymore. Um, but I did leave the piano behind for 20 years. So coming back to the physicality of playing, in, playing music myself and then playing with other people um, is something I had left behind. There's a part of me which is purely investigating being a performer. And then the other part, I'm actually, I think that our neuroscientist colleagues are really great and they're on to how to really do this as a therapeutical uh, devices and expand those and with us consulting. Going back to the original question of science and art being the same thing, they're, they're, they, they're not exactly the same thing because they express the knowledge or they disseminate the knowledge in different ways that we, that we gain. They're different kinds of knowledge. Um, but in the cases like these, when I'm working with scientists, we work with scientists, we seek each other out, and the scientists know that we're experts in art, and we can um, discuss things that are, you know, that's really kind of silly, that's not good art, and we could have scientific ideas, and our neuroscientists can say, you know, that was discovered, that's like you're, it's like you're saying you just discovered that the world was round. That is not new. Right, and we rely on each other to tell us when we're sort of like either fishing someplace that's not going to be productive, um, and then there's places where we completely push each other. And so, what? Where do they see this, or what? What excites them from a neuroscience standpoint? Similar to 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 us, um, the artists involved in these projects. On the one hand, it's pure it's it's pure investigation. How does the brain work? What's going on? Things we don't know. It's our own minds. What's the connection? Uh, what's the fullness of mind-body? The, the mind is part of the body, so you know, it's purely to investigate. And the joy of being able to use that knowledge to help people now. And so it's a continuum for our scientific colleagues as well. That's neat. I, I love how that dovetails together. Let's go on to composing. You've, you've had so much 
experience composing. And you mentioned something also very interesting to me in our last conversation. You said you tend not to compose for instruments, but for people. And in light of what you just told me about the technology and, and having the instruments respond to the people's brainwaves and so forth, when you say you tend not to compose for instruments for people, it's kind of the same idea, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, sometimes I refer to myself as a severely trained classical composer. And, and, I, and I say that to people who, you know, think, okay, technology, computers, is he really a composer, really a musician? And I'm not defensive about it because I'm, I'm a lot older than I used to be. Uh, but I still think it's an explanation. I, I, the kind of uh, music upbringing I had, I have this very uh, crazy sort of French conservatory, over-the-top amounts of counterpoint and harmony and analysis and structure and ear training and you, you name it, alongside of learning all the science stuff. But I'm really an artist. I'm not a scientist. So focus me back to the question. So I, I think you kind of got to it, which, which was composing for a person as opposed to composing for an instrument. Right. So, you know, as a younger composer, uh, you know, the I'm composing for maybe a, a student colleague of mine when I'm a young composer says, you know, write me a piece for viola, who's a violist or flute. And I'm thinking of the viola and I'm studying what's the range of the viola. How do I make that? Maybe I'm, I'm picking up a viola and I'm playing sounds myself on the viola. But at some point, in, you know, I don't know when, 20 years ago or whatever, I, I really have always been very frustrated in writing down music anyway, because I, I can write down music, but the stuff I would, would write down is, can be very difficult to play. And the things that I might ask someone to play are very hard to write down. So I found that by working with individual musicians um, over periods of time, we could make music, we could create compositions where they're playing where I'm either providing very minimal notation or sometimes none at all. And I'm using, or I would say collaborating with their body of knowledge. And I think this is something that I came to understand through practice, that when a musician is playing, what they do with their bodies is not just based on knowledge, they're exploring and creating knowledge. I'd say additionally, it's unique to them, right? So you can have 10 violinists, right? But each person is going to get a different tone. They're going to hold it differently. They're going to have their own thing. So, and, and so when you're composing to people, right, you're taking that individual in mind. What is his strength? What is her strength? How am I going to put this person in a position to make the ensemble shine, right? I just finished a piece this week um, with a player of a Vietnamese zither. It's called the Don Chan, and it's a 19-string zither. It's like a koto. More people probably know the koto, and some electronics, too. And this is a musician from the Six Tones I've been working with for 10 years, and we know each other. But I, I don't play, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a zither. It's a uh, Vietnamese zither. What do I know about that? Except I work with her, and I could learn how to write down the music for her to play. But we can make music together, and I could, you know, it's my piece. Um, I don't. It's not like it's my piece. I'm like the ego going there. But you know, it's there's a, there's an author there with a kind of a you know leading the vision of the piece. But there's no possible way I make this piece without her. It, it's zero chance this piece. And you know, we both feel like it came out to be a really great piece, and she can now play it wherever she needs. She has memorized it into her body, and she can have some flexibility with how she plays it as well. So what does that look like though, when you're working with her? Okay, so you're not giving her the direction, yet you know each other and, and there are a lot of, you know, you read each other in those circumstances. I get that. But how does she know that, 
How, so how are you working together in that situation? Are you saying, I kind of hear it like this, or you're saying, no, I'm not going to get in the way. I'm going to let her hear it. And, and again, just see what happens. How, how does that work? Any way you can imagine. I mean, it might be start by playing something like this and she'll play it. And then I'll say, keep on going, do this, go higher the instrument, lower. And I'll, I will sort of draft out a section of a piece. And then she'll play it again. And as she's playing it again and either forgets how uh, she's supposed to play it or plays it the right way, I start to say, okay, now I hear that detail. Let's, let's stop. Let's do that again. And we, it's, like real, it's just like regular composing. It actually takes longer, not shorter, because we have to keep on playing it over and over again to make the piece, and she has to memorize it. It's, it's a very unique way of working. That, um, and, and as I said, the, the, the point for me, this is, I'm not saying if this is like the way other people should compose, but for me, I'll give you a typical question I'm asking her, partly because it's music, it's an instrument that's not you know, one of my native instruments. Um, sometimes I'll sit, she's playing and she'll play a section and she'll stop and you know we think it sounds good and everything and I'll say, um, have you ever have you ever played anything like that before? Because because we both think it really sounds good and she says she'll say no, and I'll say great, now we're doing something, right? So that seems it strikes me as the center of your whole thing. Like you had talked also about how you loved to get groups of musicians together who play different kinds of music and see what happens when you when you put so this is like at the core of Richard Carpet, right? Let's let's try all this and see what happens. It's interesting from a composition standpoint though, because like when you compose music, you kind of have a vision of, well, and maybe I should just speak for myself, kind of a complete vision of how I see it see its end, right? Yeah, and even though I'm improvising, perhaps in a over a section of it, that's just my section, which is going to lead to this sort of idea that I've created soup to nuts earlier. Right. So it's the same. It's a, it's the same. I have a concept for the piece. Yep. Um, I've been thinking the piece that we just did this week. She's visiting from. She lives in Sweden now. She's just visiting um, the piece that we completed this week. Um, I've been thinking about for two years, but I haven't been thinking. Okay, this note, that note, you know, this sound, this sound. But I've been, I've been, it's been in me thinking and wanting to do this piece, and likewise um, for for her to do this piece together. So now, do you see this as a macro view of it, or does it still feel micro because you've been ruminating on it for two years? Because on one hand, you say, you know, I'm not going to write anything down. I've been thinking about it for two years. But how precise is it in your mind when you when you get together? Not at all. Um, the actual details are not at all precise, except that it unfolds. This is why this is my experience of being an artist is, is you know, it's there. So it's, it's done, it's there. And then I need to discover what it is that's done and there. I, I, I think it's important for, you know, audience listening to, you know, someone like me, you know, might sound like a you know, crazy composer doing all these things, that in the end, the other thing that I'm always working with my musician colleagues, uh, I, I kind of have a I would say I kind of have a crew now of musicians I work with. I'm always saying, we, let's do this because that's what the audience needs. You know, let's, stop, let's have a little bit of space or we need to build up a little bit more than, you know, we don't need it for ourselves. We understand it. And so in the end, I'm a kind of traditional composer where I care about structure. I want the pieces to be the pieces. You can't do anything you want to do anytime you want to. Then it wouldn't be the piece. And usually that leads to boring music. And so I'm very, very careful in the end to, to work on pieces with my colleagues that are that have the equivalent kind of structure that I've actually written down classical or jazz or some other kind of culture's music that I would have that would have that audiences can can get into. You know, there's one common theme that's streaming through all these podcasts. I feel like I've had this luxury of talking to these just super interesting and talented people. But the one theme 
that is true through each podcast I've done is that the person I'm talking to has accomplished all these things has just been themselves, right? They're not trying to, oh, I should be like this other person. I mean, you're, you're just going after the things that are innately interesting to you. And yes, you consult with others and you refine your craft and you go through the process of building a foundation, but you are not afraid of you. You're not afraid of being you. Even if I were, I can't help it. I'm me. So I could be afraid of who I am. Well, you, but then you could act on that fear and not be you, right? And I, I think countless musicians get caught up in that. I think we're so bound with what are other people going to think of me that we never tap into what is innately there. And we just assume because it's in us, maybe it's not viable or it's not good or it doesn't look like this other person. And I'm just struck by how how everyone I've talked to that I'm so intrigued by, it's it's that they are their own voice. And I just think that's great. And you know, when you get when you're approaching things the way that you are, you know, sometimes you don't know what you know until you're in it, right? Like you had said something to the extent of art acts as a bridge to know the things we can't articulate, right? Doesn't that kind of sum up what you're talking about? You get in it and you're like, I I can't articulate this, but I can through sound. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I happen I happen to have very um I you know, since I was a kid, I internally I I see I have images of the music, not like they're abstract images. So it's not like a picture of something. So I, I you know, it's but I'm very bad at creating visual art if I ever try when I try when I was younger. So I, that's that's clearly not what I, I do, even if in, in my mind I'm seeing stuff. Um somehow, whatever reason, you know, sound, music and structure and time seem to be the thing that I do. Yeah. Also, you know, in our last conversation, we discussed how things may have been different today if composers such as Beethoven, for example, could have recorded themselves. How do you imagine things would be different today if composers had had that ability then? Is that a weird question? It's not a weird question. Um, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's, it's a question, I mean, to be honest, I, I can, we, we could talk about that forever, um, but I, I, was, I was just talking to somebody thinking like, you know, I remember when I was a young composer um, getting a uh, getting an LP, you know, uh, that was Greek music and it was reconstructed music from ancient Greece. And I, and I thought, great. And at some point I realized they have no idea what it sounded like. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I, you know, I, I think, I think it's, I can, I think it's fair to say that if, if there were high quality recording around at Beethoven's time, you know, maybe Beethoven's the wrong choice because he wouldn't have been able to hear it, but he would know it was being recorded. It may not be so different for him as a composer. I don't think the fact that I can record things are different for me, but it certainly would be different for the composers who came after because they would be hearing exactly, not the interpretations of others playing the music, but they'd be hearing for, for generations, you know, what it was that Beethoven did. And, and it could be, you know, that once people, once the composer's aware of that, that you start to edit and you start to make the recording itself a work of art. Yeah, you wonder, right? Because when you listen back to recording, ultimately there are things that didn't sound at all like you expected that they did when you were in real time, right? It'd be interesting to see if these guys would have gone back and done that. Now, we're always learning. And you mentioned also in one of our conversations how you loved watching pianist Maurizio Pollini. Tell us what you learn from watching concerts and Polini in particular. Polini is a pianist who has resonated with me since I was a young composer and pianist. 
Um, and not because, you know, partly I sure probably found out about him. I don't remember, but I'm assuming I found out about him because when he was a younger pianist, he played a lot of contemporary music. He doesn't now. He plays a lot of Chopin now and plays it amazingly. There's a, I guess I would say there's a religiosity in the approach. And I don't mean like, um, I guess I, I'll just use the word spirituality rather than religiosity because religion seems like a, a set of doctrines. There's a spirituality, a mystical, mysterious, you know, artistic, transcendent quality to his to his playing that transcends his aging and his less amazing ability to uh, at the keyboard. It almost sounds more beautiful um, as he can't actually navigate all the keys in the way. Um, and it's not because it's it's poignant because he's older and he can't play as fast and all that kind of stuff. But literally, in just on literal terms, I, I've I've been li- in listening to the sound and watching him play and watching him pedal, just the basics of learning piano. This is just, I get, I feel, I, I say to my colleagues, I'm going to hear Polini for a piano lesson because I'm, it's just the basics, pedaling. I'm watching him pedal while I'm listening. And it may seem like, you know, I'm, I'm in my early sixties and it may seem late in the day for me to learn, be learning about pedaling, but I am, and I, and I'm learning and I, and he's learning about pedaling. Because he has, because he uses the pedal so much more, I think, than he did when he was a younger pianist, um, to create the resonances that his fingers used to do. I, I think as you get older, you create more of a vision for the music, though, right? You understand right. it so much more, and That's so right. we do change. I I had the opportunity to see Segovia at the end of his life on guitar, and his tone. Are you kidding me? He it was incredible. There was so much depth in the tone, and I think as you get older, you just understand. The emotion behind the music, potentially, you know, you you're supposed to anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, you're capable of, I think, expressing yeah. Uh, yeah. this more succinctly or not. That's right. That's maybe not the right word, but no, I think it is. All right. So, tell coming off of all of your experience, we do have a lot of young listeners tuning in. What would you share as like parting thoughts for people, artists? Doesn't have to be young people specifically, but just your own wisdom from your own journey. So, you know, I almost have a message for parents. Yeah, great. Go for it. That's important too. Music develops. I know this. We know this. You know, you can, you can wait till it's proven and that you shouldn't. Music develops certain kinds of connections in the brain of young people. And in my generation, whether you're going to be a musician or not, a lot of kids, I sang in the choir in elementary school. I went to, I was working class, public school student. There was music in the schools. I had a very bad piano at home that I taught myself how to play and learned that I could learn music. So I think I think that music just has to be in young people, not listening to only the popular music of the day that we all love to listen to, but really complex music and music of all times, including contemporary complex music and not avoiding it because you don't understand or don't like it. So I, I think when you think about this and you're thinking about your kids, I remember when I was a teenager having some relatives come over who had a four-year-old or maybe a three-year-old, maybe even younger, who sat at my piano and was banging on the piano. And the parents said, don't do that. And I even even at that age, I, I was like horrified. It's like, no, he's like, he's three years old. He can't play the piano, but he's explore, he's, he's, he's exploring sound, right? So it's really important. Uh, forget about the art part. This is this is a this is cognitive training that only happens through art because it's very very complex and it's something that young people can do these complex things before they can do calculus. But in reality, I think just beginning acculturated to having 
really serious, complex, I don't mean like hard, hard, but, you know, complicated stuff, stuff that's stuff that really moves you in ways that are, that are, that make you, not even make you think that you, that want to make you think, because I don't believe in like, you should make people think people should think because they want to think, but what makes you want to think um, is, you know, is the difference between civilization and no civilization, period. I, I think, you know, we all know this. Civilizations are remembered by their science and art for reasons, and I'm not limited to that. And I know there's a lot of political kind of hype these days, and I, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to get myself in hot water. I don't really care if I get in hot water. But I think that as long as art is something that's um, that has an enormous amount of discipline behind it for the artist that's making the art, it doesn't really matter what genre it is. It's the enormous amount of discipline and commitment to discovery that we want young artists to understand that's what you do. And going back to your very wise words before about you know, knowing who you are, you have to figure out who you are as an artist. That's the hardest part. What, what, is you, what does your body and mind actually, what can it do? I think it's hard because you're trying to separate from should and ought and all these different things. And I think it's so much more natural than we make it. That's right. That's right. It is. And so how can people find out more about you? If people want to discover more about your music, your research, tell us where we can send people. I guess they can go to, you know, right now they can go to the School of Music of uh, the University of Washington website. I, um, I guess it's music.washington.edu or my own website, Carpin. I think it's, I can't tell you the truth. Um, do you remember <laughs> what the address is? Look, I know. You know. Look me up on Google. Um, and I'm the, I think I'm the only, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a musician who lives in Copenhagen who's named Richard Carpin, same name exactly, who does these kinds of um, street theater, which is like very, very funny. Um, so I'm not, I'm not that one. So if you just look me up on Google, <laughs> the I'm, the, I'm the other one. <laughs> yeah. And he says the same thing. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you so much it's a pleasure. for joining us. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you, Ben. And I want to thank everybody else also for tuning into Piano Whisperer. If you want to find out more about our podcast or about Piano Whisperer or about previous podcasts, please log on to pianowhisperer.org. That's pianowhisperer.org. These podcasts also are available on Spotify and Apple Music and Google Podcasts and TuneIn and Stitcher and some others. So please feel free to, to log on and hear some other podcasts as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. I feel privileged to be able to uh, share these uh, interesting stories with you, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you've been inspired to go deeper in your piano journey. To learn more about our podcast, please visit pianowhisper.org. Please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcast.